Good afternoon. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President uh, for Collections and Exhibitions, and I welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and the, all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Ann Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. And today we'd like to say a special thank you as well to the Society of Colonial Wars in the state of Virginia. And it's governor, Ed Campbell, is Ed here? Ed is right there up in the front, uh, who are sponsoring today's program. Um, the Society has been uh, a longstanding partner with us uh, and a very generous one uh, to uh, the Virginia Historical Society and now the VMHC. So we're eternally grateful for your support. So thank you very much. Uh, a few programming notes uh, before I introduce today's speaker. Um, coming up on August 15th at 10 a.m., a virtual program will be our next curator conversation. Uh, curator Paige Newman will be talking about our latest exhibition, Cheers, Virginia, which I hope uh, you all have had a chance to, to go through. If not, please do so uh, when we're done here. On August 24th at 6.30 p.m., we will continue our Created Equal film series uh, with Heard. This is an Emmy Award-winning documentary that captures the inspiring stories of individuals who are current and former residents of public housing in Richmond. And we'll be having a conversation with the filmmaker, uh, David Powers, as well as some film participants after that program. And finally, on August 25th at noon, our next VMHC lecture, we'll have Derek Baxter here, who will be talking about his book, In Pursuit of Jefferson, Traveling Through Europe with the Most Perplexing Founding Father. So that sounds intriguing. So on to today's program. Indentured servitude was common in colonial America. When voluntary, it allegedly offered dispossessed British subjects the opportunity to improve their situation after their term. However, the practice of kidnapping people into involuntary indentured servitude occurred with great regularity. Today, we will hear about two fictional interpretations of the case of James Annesley. The heir to a bit of an Irish baronry, Annesley's uncle had him secretly kidnapped as a child and sold him as an indentured servant in Virginia where he labored for 14 years. When he finally returned to Virginia, he was the subject of more than 60 publications, all of which emphasized his role as an indentured slave. These narratives about colonial America give voice to persistent fears about the potential captivity of British, British subjects on colonial soil. In addition to discussing Annesley's captivity, today's speaker will also discuss other states of domestic captivity common within England, including the threatening conditions for women held captive within a colonial domestic space. Catherine Ingracia is in the English department uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University. She is also the interim uh, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences there. She is the author or editor of seven uh, books, including Authorship, Commerce, and Gender in 18th Century England, A Culture of Paper Credit, The Cambridge Companion to 18th Century Women Writers, and the subject of today's talk, her most recent book, Domestic Captivity, and the British subject, 1660 to 1750. Please welcome Catherine Ingracia. Good 
Great, thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, my thanks to Graham for the invitation to speak today and to Adam uh, for the introduction and certainly to the sponsor of the Society of Colonial Wars. Um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to share uh, some of the material from my recently published book, Domestic Captivity and the British Subject. Uh, as Adam noted, I'm a literary historian who works primarily on material published in England, roughly between the middle of the 17th, I guess I should advance to my slide, uh, the middle of the 17th and the middle of the 18th century. And I started working on this book because I was really interested in the contradiction that I was seeing between literary texts across all genres that were really filled with the language of captivity in the face of the most common association with British identity, the sort of vowed assertion and idealized vision of England as a site of liberty. You might think of the song, Rural Britannia. The chorus is, Britons never will be slaves, right? That's an avowed uh, holding idea. The text that I was reading and teaching to my students, the language, metaphors, and images in the first half of the 18th century repeatedly suggested that many British subjects perceived their lives to be shaped by captivity or threats of captivity. And as I demonstrate and talk about in my book, many British subjects expressed a real anxiety about the possibility that they would find themselves in some form of what I term domestic captivity, the captivity of white British subjects. During the period my book explores, the exercise of power on both institutional levels and personal levels could create conditions in which those who were the least empowered, the poor and the dispossessed, the young and the unprotected, women both married and single, perceive themselves to be captive subjects. So domestic captives could include individuals restrained by forms of power emanating from institutional, economic, social, or legal structures, or the agents of those structures, right? A workhouse warren, a parish official, a military officer, a landlord, or even a spouse. The inequities institutionalized within England's socioeconomic structure created asymmetrical power relationships, as, as I'm sure we would all recognize. Um, and along with that, there was an increasing objectification of an entire category of people, and these things contributed to what I term a culture of captivity, a culture with a persistent awareness of and anxiety about the presence and possibility of confinement in various forms. So my book looks at some of the most popular fictional texts of the period, plays, novels, poetry, where captivity centrally shapes the narrative and in turn fuels the text's popularity. People wanted to read about it because they were anxious about it and there's this displaced fascination with it. So I discovered not only was captivity central to these narratives, but also every author that I was discussing, almost without exception, was in connected in some way to some sort of institutionalized form of captivity, most frequently, of course, some connection to the transatlantic slave trade. And the more I researched, it became increasingly clear to me that the condition of captivity was so naturalized and so normalized and so widespread that it in some ways was absolutely unremarkable, especially in literary texts, which refer to it often in a kind of shorthand or a code to places, practices, people. And that literary scholars had often regarded such references to captivity as primarily metaphorical, when in fact they pointed to very real historical practices. So my book has chapters on situations like Barbary captivity, which is the kidnapping of a, a European subject. Typically at sea, they would raid ships and their enslavement in North Africa. Or I have a chapter on representations of marriage by women, that's a common thread, that's a thread through the book, and their comparison of it to different forms of enslavement. Or I look at the correspondence of a female poet whose husband was a plantation owner and a slaveholder, and how their exchange vacillated between expressions of affection her frustration with her limited power as a married woman, and in turn details about the conditions of the enslaved on their plantation, suggesting just how deeply woven and again naturalized these various conditions of captivity were. The chapter I'm going to draw on today focuses on the condition of indentured servitude of British subjects in colonial America. So this afternoon, I'd like to do three things. First, I'd like to briefly discuss what contributed to the formation of the culture of captivity and the anxiety that existed about domestic captivity. 
Then I'd like to turn to indentured servitude as a cultural narrative and a material practice. And then finally, I want to look at one of the, the stories of one of the most famous situations of indentured servitude, albeit involuntary, the case of James Ansley, who was heir to a title, but kidnapped as a child and sold into indentured servitude so that his evil uncle, as the narrative would have it, could claim his title. The most popular narrative of these tells us a lot about British attitudes toward colonial America, which were not particularly favorable, uh, assumptions about British and American masculinity, and the position of women, both within indentured servitude and the formation of these relationships. Let's start by thinking about what made people feel like they lived in what I'm calling a culture of captivity. Um, first, and perhaps most foundationally we can think about, and perhaps most familiarly to us, was the English involvement in the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans, which fueled the colonial expansion in both the West Indies and, of course, colonial America. And the older narrative that a few wealthy families were the primary drivers here has really been exploded in the last decade, as we recognize that, especially as the century progressed, the engagement and investment, and literally it was an investment, in uh, slave owning, slave holding in some way, spanned the geography of the British Isles, spanned genders and spanned class. You'd see widows or parish ministers who would invest in uh, a, a person because it was seen as a safe investment. Certainly the action started at the top. The British crown had monopoly rights to the trade of enslaved people. The Royal African Company, note royal, uh, was headed by the man who would become James II and it fueled tremendous amounts of wealth. Yet the engagement in the trade was widespread. Ship owners, shipbuilders, sailors, sugar merchants, etc., were engaged in the process and very few people would not have known someone connected in some manner with the slave trade. And when you remember that, you realize pretty quickly it's actually all over canonical texts of the 18th century. And it's useful to remember that the two fictional characters that most, most people in this room or more broadly would recognize, Robinson Crusoe or Gulliver from Gulliver's Travels, the reason they're traveling in the first place is because they're on slaving voyages. Um, and as a side note, Defoe himself, uh, who of course wrote Robinson Crusoe, sold indentured servants. So it's deeply implicated. Um, Jane Austen as well, I, I, I published elsewhere about Jane Austen and her connection and awareness of slavery and the families that were slaveholders. The British use of enslaved people to solve the labor shortage in the West Indies meant the colonies developed their own set of laws related to the status of people inhabiting the islands in ways that legally codified enslavement. And so one of the earliest examples is the Barbados Slave Code of 1661, which one historian describes as the moment that human beings became real chattels, a significant conceptual shift. I think we want to think about it as a conceptual shift. I would note that initially, indentured service servants and enslaved Africans were used in nearly equal numbers in the West Indi Indian plantations, and they were referred to interchangeably in early texts of the late uh, 17th century, which described servants, both Christians and slaves. So there's a slippage there. At base, the actions of the British during this period were motivated by two impulses, the accrual of wealth and solving the labor shortage that enabled the accrual of wealth. And so the other two items that you see on my slide here um, are other means to doing that. The capacity to increase wealth expanded following the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, which ended the War of Spanish Succession and allowed England to enter into the Asiento, which gave, and I'm quoting here, subjects of Great Britain the liberty of importing enslaved Africans into Spanish America. And you might want to think about you know, the irony, obviously, of the liberty of enslaving uh, people. The agreement led to the development of the South Sea Company, which also granted trading rights to enslaved people. Uh, uh, Queen Anne granted that to the South Sea Company. During the same period in 1718, the Transportation Act was passed by the House of Parliament, which basically said that someone who was arrested for a crime against property could be transported to the colonies to labor for the period of seven years. And if they returned early, they were executed if they didn't fulfill their full term. The transportation had the two, I guess you would say, benefits of ridding England of those people who were deemed criminal and providing the colonies with another supply of laborers for what one historian describes as a period of quote unquote slave labor. And it's really useful to remember that during this period, 
a theft of a, a petty crime or petty larceny that could be as small as theft of a, as, of a handkerchief could res, uh, that would be worth less than a shilling could result in transportation to the colonies, um, which is sort of a shocking thing to think about. If you're familiar with the, the, uh, John Gay's text, The Beggar's Opera, everyone's worried about being, you know, having tra being transported to the colonies just for stealing really petty items. This kind of coerced colonial labor must be considered part of a larger sort of imperial project that's connected with both indentured servitude and, of course, slavery. And again, there's slippage among these terms in the British imagination and a clear tendency to see British labor through the lens of different forms of slavery. Now, while I've put four specific things on my slide here, obviously a lot of other things contributed to this culture of captivity. Men could be pressed into military service as sailors or soldiers by press gangs. And one scholar estimates that approximately 250,000 British seamen were impressed during the period into what were notoriously harsh conditions, right? Flogging, hierarchical structures, etc. Debtor's prison was similarly a familiar destination and another form of captivity where you actually have to pay your debts before you, you have to pay to be in prison and then pay your debts to get out of prison. And notices of bankruptcy demanded that people be, uh, who were declared bankrupt be go re re return themselves to commissioners, put into sponging houses or set into prison. Some would be sent to houses of correction where inmates were required to labor during their term of service. And the punishment was formalized just a few years after the Transportation Act by the Workhouse Act of 1723. And finally, while I'm not going to discuss it too much today, my book does spend a lot of time considering the legal restrictions upon women as married women in England who were legally covered by their husbands. So they essentially, their legal existence disappeared. They were not considered separately from their husband. All their property belonged to their husband and they themselves were, of course, a form of property in an age where there was not uh, uh, the ability to have any divorce that literally took an act of parliament. Um, and that was true until the 19th century. And married women frequently represented themselves as existing in a kind of domestic captivity and enslavement. And before I go any further, I want to just point out one obvious thing that uh, that you all would be aware of, that the enslavement of kidnapped uh, Africans and the kinds of domestic captivity I'm talking about are two very different things. And so when I use the term captivity in connection with the confinement of a British subject, it is in no way meant to equate that captive condition to the bondage of enslaved Africans. The captivity of Britons was contingent, not perpetual. It was temporary, not inheritable. And the difference is obviously vast. Nevertheless, in the language of the time, it's very clear there was slippage. It's equally clear that those were mutually domestic captivity and enslavement were mutually enabling and mutually informing and mutually reinforcing cultural practices. The category of unfree people I want to focus on now is indentured servants. Uh, alongside the practice of building British, uh, holding British subjects in different forms of domestic captivity through transportation, debtor's prison, etc., indentured servitude was another important source of captive labor. And during this period, we estimate about 300,000 English, Irish, and Scottish subjects were put in, entered into indentured servant. And the prevalence of indentured servitude suggests the ways in which many British subjects who lacked opportunities or resources allowed themselves to become what one writer at the time termed bought servants or voluntary slaves. Now, the contract that you see in front of you is something that would be typical, and the London Metropolitan Archive literally has hundreds of these, and they're actually really fascinating to look like, even though they look like they're sort of um, the same, because they reveal a lot about the nature of the interaction and what it is someone thought they or didn't think they were getting into. Uh, as you can see, it, the date, the age, the location of where someone is coming from is all clearly indicated uh, here. And if you notice, you know, this young man is 17 years old. It also tells you, 17, it also tells you where they're going. Of course, it's not like you had a choice in where you were going. Um, I think the most interesting thing to note, and this is the most common thing that you see on these, is the fact that he signs with an X, right? That the idea that these individuals read these documents as contracts that they could understand is, is just completely not true. And even when you see a signature, you have to question, right? Anyone could learn to sign their name just because you could do that in no way meant that you could actually read the document. And it reveals, of course, that the terms are a little problematic. <laughs> they're 
non-specific enough to suggest that you're going to get the bare minimum, but perhaps not much more. Um, so it tells you a lot about the con that the conditions of one's life that would compel one to sell oneself. But not all of transportation of white laborers from Britain was voluntary. Uh, and a vulnerable segment of the population were also subject to the act of what was termed spiriting away. Individuals were spirited away to be sold into the colonies, which is a practice that actually originated in the early 17th century. And the quotation that you have in front of you is a great example, um, and, I, and which relates, of course, to Virginia. William Bullock in the mid 17th century describes how one of the ways to get uh, labor to Virginia was uh, the usual way of getting servants to have a sort of man nicknamed spirits who take up the idle, lazy, simple people they can entice, such as have professed idleness and will rather beg than work, who are persuaded by these spirits they shall go to a place where food shall drop into their mouths and being thus deluded, take courage and are transported. And of course, it would take courage to get on a ship in the 18th century and have a transatlantic uh, voyage. So the theme of the abducted servant, the cheating agent, people being spirited away was a well-rehearsed narrative in the 18th, 17th and 18th century. The stories about spirits specifically targeting children, coaxing them onto ships in order to sell them, uh, circulated widely and continued through the century. Now, most children sold into indentured servitude came from what might be considered in different circumstances. But the most famous kidnapped child, and the one I want to discuss today, came from a life marked by comfort and privilege, making his situation that much more shocking and, of course, fascinating and perhaps anxiety-producing for contemporary audiences. Um, James Ansley was the son and legitimate heir uh, of the fourth Baron Altham. However, his parents' estrangement, coupled with his father's financial situation, created a breach that cast real doubts on that legitimacy. And after his father's death, the title went to his uncle, his younger brother, who solidified the claim by having James kidnapped and sold into indentured servitude, where he labored for more than 13 years. He was thought dead uh, until the first notice of his return. And of course, you see this image. This is from a frontispiece from uh, one of the books where the ship that has brought him back and his laboring on the left-hand side of the, of the sheet, the, his laboring in the colonies. Um, he was long thought dead. And the first notice of his return shows up on February 12, 1741, in a Daily Post article where he'd been rescued by a British uh, sea captain who recognized the story and identified him. Now, this, like all of the information about it, refers to him, not just uh, the, the fact that he is kidnapped as a child, but also the idea that he has been in slavery. That is the term that is used consistently throughout all of these narratives. And this sparked great fascination among the reading public. And from his return to England in 1741 until the conclusion of the trial in 1743, where he was seeking to regain his title, there were more than 60 publications about this narrative. And they ranged from very detailed and expensive accounts of the legal proceedings to satiric poems, to ballads, and to very crude chapbooks, right, that are visually illustrating it. Uh, and without fail, regardless of the audience that was intended, they are focused on what's termed his enslavement and detail his physical abuse. And here is an image of, you know, the, as you can see from the title, the young boy being sold into indentured servitude. And this image is from obviously a very crude uh, and less expensive publication. But again, that bespeaks, I think, the range of fascination with that. What's significant about Ansley is how profoundly his story differs from the dominant narratives of kidnapping or abduction, which again, usually affected the poor, the young, or the unskilled. He was the opposite, destined for a title, an inheritance. So being kidnapped on English soil and relegated to a life of indentured servitude in the American colonies is the kind of story that gives rise to those persistent anxieties that I'm talking about, anyone's vulnerability to captivity. Now, the most widely read and published account, and the one I'm going to focus on today, of Ansley's ordeal was written by a woman who was one of the most popular women writers of, in England of the 18th, early 18th century. She was an innovator of the novel and a very market-savvy author, so she recognized what she had here. And she anticipated the cultural fascination with Ainsley. And you can see how his 
elevated status on the title page is very much front and center, right? Memoirs of the unfortunate young nobleman returned from 13 years slavery in America, where he'd been sent by the wicked contrivances of his control uncle, a story founded in truth. And as you know, 18th century title pages are very textually dense, right? They give you a lot of information about what it is you're going to, uh, what you're going to read. Um, the interesting thing about this account is not just what it tells you, it's going to tell you uh, in terms of the narrative itself, but the more complicated issues I think it raises. His tale of captivity, which uh, from which he emerges ready to assume his title, is designed to demonstrate the degree to which British male identity can remain untouched or innate, even in the corrosive environment where ignorant, bullying American ca captors uh, are in charge of the young boy. Now, Haywood's Ansley has the ability to retain and indeed cultivate with the assistance of an indentured female servant, the ennobling elements of rationality and benevolence and sensibility that are central to the idealized construction of British masculinity. So the colonial captivity of a man who would in England lead a life of privilege and power does not derail his progress toward that ascendance. Uh, actually, his captivity serves to consolidate just how worthy he really is of that role and the British and the idealized vision of British masculinity. Um, it reinforces the text as a whole, just like his experience as the indentured slave, reinforces the superiority of the British as natural and legitimate masters in sharp contrast to the American plantation owners who, uh, who hold uh, him in captivity, who represent a purely acquisitive, debased version of masculinity, and thus an unfit master. So Haywood's narrative spans in this Ansley's initial domestic captivity in England through his passage to the colonies uh, throughout his time in America. And at every stage, young Ansley's greatest concern is for the future of lost opportunity for education. And he says to the captain who's transporting him on the ship, I shall have no learning and she'll be a slave. And the captain of the ship dismisses his concerns and exploits the common descriptors for unfree labor in the colonies. Oh, you'll have opportunities enough to learn anything. You're going, there's nothing so uh, terrible in the name of slave as you imagine. It's only another name for an apprentice, which was not untrue, but was certainly uh, a different situation here. Here, excuse me. The imprecise language marks the instability of the three dominant terms for unfree labor in the colonies, apprentice, indentured servant, and slave, categories of unfree labor that were largely interchangeable. Once in the colonies, the captain sells James to a rich planter who immediately entered him among the numbers of slaves. He lives in a slave house and is laboring in the fields from the moment he gets there. And his dehumanization is institutionalized by the labor structure. He was, as Haywood writes, as absolutely as an ox or an ass or any other property. His master is an American plantation owner named Drummond, who becomes a representative of all the worst impulses seen central to all American rather than British owners. The cruel monster seems to do everything in his power to degenerate the laborers from the human species. Um, and the shock value given on that is heightened because, again, this is a British male heir to a title who is enduring this experience. For Drummond, like his plantation-owning contemporaries, all unfree laborers constitute nothing more than a species of labor. Haywood spends time describing both the legal and physical punishments indentured servants can experience as a way of educating British readers on the perils of indentured servitude. For example, the colony's legal structure reinforces the purely economic attitude toward indentured servants. A planter like the one who owns James Ansley can manipulate the system in order to extend a laborer's term of service, a term called mulcting. The barbarous policy, as Haywood terms it, motivates American planters to intensify the conditions to use their slaves ill right before the time their term is over to prompt them to seek to escape, after which the laws require that when they're retaken, as they commonly are, as Haywood says, um, for their dis disobedience, they're obliged to pay a period twice the time that was left owned. It's interesting to note that the term mulct specifically refers to exacting a financial 
penalty. So for individuals in, finance, in indentured servitude, the only available currency to them is, of course, their own bodies, right? They're dispossessed labor. So that's the only way, that the only thing that they can't actually control, but the only way in which they can, uh, the thing that circulates for them as a form of currency. Haywood details other kinds of punishment common uh, among indentured servants. While James is on the plantation, another slave, Jacob, and again, the term slave is used, he's a white British indentured servant. Uh, another slave, Jacob, escapes taking a bag of money. When he's captured, he's stripped, uh, receives 20 lashes from his fellow slaves, and then is resold to a planter in Philadelphia. Um, it, the the Slave owner has the option to brand him on his forehead, but branding him would mar his physical appearance and diminish his resale value. So Haywood makes the point of noting that the most cruel tempers show mercy when they find it is in their financial interest to do so. So ameliorated treatment by American owners stems not from benevolence, but rather from pure financial self-interest. Haywood quite specifically characterizes the captivity that James endures as specifically American. It's an American form of servitude. Um, the distinction is, I think, really important, both in terms of the American master and the American experience. The figure of the colonial planter in America is brutal and brutalizing, and it charts an important and persistent characterization of a distinctly colonial masculinity uh, that is in sharp contrast to this idealized vision of the British. She details Drummond's cruelty, his delight in heightening the calamities of those under his control, his lack of compassion, and his determination to accord the worst treatment to those entitled the best. And that idea that there are someone who should be treated better is a reminder, of course, that it is people like James Ansley or, you know, um, genteel women who are sold into indentured servitude, etc. So there's a way in which she's always reminding us that there's a range of people from different classes and positions who find themselves in this in this situation. The perverse behavior of the dehumanization stands in complete odds with the constructed ideal of the rational benevolent landowner associated with the British ruling class. Clearly, as the state of the poor in England and the enslaved in British West Indies clearly documents, this construction constituted a complete fantasy, but one with cultural freight within the narrative. Further, Haywood uses this narrative to compare different forms of enslavement based on geographic location, all of which would have been familiar to a British reader. For example, she describes the hardships of an American slavery as infinitely more terrible than a Turkish one. And by Turkish slavery, she's talking about Barbary captivity, which I briefly mentioned, where between roughly 1660 and 1730s and 40s, thousands, and the estimates range from somewhere to 20,000 to 100,000 Britons and other Europeans were taken captive and enslaved uh, by Barbary corsairs and held in North Africa to labor. Some were ransomed, some were labored, uh, were laborers. But Barbary captives were most often um, sailors, maybe who had originally been pressed into service. Um, and the comparison of American and British slavery makes Turkish captivity seem less onerous. And it makes these Turkish captors seem less foreign than American plantation owners, uh, as though that's an easier form of confinement. Um, the Americans' viciousness, self-interest, relentless use of violence, in Haywood's depiction, runs completely counter, again, to the qualities ascribed to a British elite. Haywood also, and perhaps even more interestingly, specifically compares the condition in America with the manner in which slaves or servants to the West Indie planters in general live. And notice again her slippage of slaves and servants. Haywood provides very detailed information about diet, clothing, labor on American plantations. They eat hominy, they eat corn, et cetera, et cetera, that reveal the abject conditions uh, for all and all who are held captive are characterized as slaves. However, she sharply distinguishes between American and West Indian plantation owners or masters because West Indian owners were individuals identified by her as British, as of course historically they commonly were. She suggests that some masters in the West Indies appear more human 
and humane than American masters and soften in some measure the severity of those poor creatures uh, with gentle words. The description runs completely counter to the well-documented horrific conditions in West Indian plantations and also suggests quite clearly efforts to rehabilitate the image of the British plantation owners. Early descriptions of West Indian plantocracy dwell on its avarice, its atavistic behavior, and utterly inhumane treatment of uh, the enslaved and the indentured. Thus, Haywood's practice of this praise of this group of plantation slave owners sits in quite strategic opposition to the American planter, again, advancing her idealized presentation of a British elite and the construction of masculinity with which it's associated. The text extols those West Indian plantation owners who know how to make the right use of power in a world where most men imagine they cannot be rulers without being tyrants. And it's this that gives the fierceness to subserviency. Haywood never questions the validity of this institutionalized power structure. She distinguishes the national identity of those in power as, the only, as a way of further valorizing the idealized construction of the British. Now, while the narrative, her narrative, is focused primarily on James, she also gives some attention and a fascinating portrait of other kinds of British subjects who also, beyond unprotected children, who also are sold into indentured servitude. She spends a lot of time discussing a female indentured servant, the cast-off wife of a person of quality and consideration in England who labors alongside James. This unnamed female slave of nearly 60 years of age, and this is from Haywood's text, and you can, the, you have to account for the long um, S, which looks like an F, nearly 60 years of age, um, who was a cast off wife of a person of quality, but with an air and aspect that denoted her to have been a person little accustomed to the servile offices she was now employed in. Her bloom being passed, as she tells James, her husband had her trepanned on board a vessel bound for Pennsylvania, where she later fell into the lot of the pitiless master that also owns James. Never named, this woman's name is never given, in part because it's fictionalized, but in part also, Haywood wants to remind her readers that the story is not unique. Uh, the woman's situation receives detailed treatment. Haywood strategically provides the compelling story of an aging woman discarded by her husband, essentially moving from one form of legal captivity and marriage to another form in indentured servitude. And the narrative illustrates in the barest possible terms, the degree to which women in England or in colonial sites are particularly susceptible to that kind of commodification. Their value often dependent on their strength, their age, or their physical appearance, all of which often diminishes over the passage of time. Haywood paints a very grim picture for this woman's existence. While the cruel master initially designates the woman for domestic work because she can do handy, she can embroider because she's a genteel woman, her tears are so fierce that she's unable to do close work. Um, he re relegates her to increasingly demeaning forms of labor, making terrible food that she uh, feeds to, the, that she takes out in the fields to the enslaved. And it's almost this inversion of the kind of housewifery that she would have been responsible for when she was in England. Notably, the delicacy of her constitution could not sustain her labor. And that term delicacy reminds us that well, that vestige of her previous life, right? And what is a virtue or an asset in England becomes only a liability to her once she is in this situation. The other asset that she has is that she is literate. And in colonial captivity, uh, she attempts to escape by writing a letter or trying to write a letter, secret a letter out to her friends and family in England in hope of being redeemed. But her literacy, at least in her relationship with her master, also becomes a severe liability as he chastises her when he discovers the letter with the most cruel stripes by way of examples to others. So the marks of his vindictiveness across her body, her physical body becomes a text which replaces the written words on the page seeking her release. Uh, even though he tries to reduce her to an object lesson to others, the unnamed woman takes on the role of active tutor. If you remember 
What is James's big concern when he goes is is kidnapped and taken across the ocean? He's concerned that he's not going to have an education. And he receives one at the hands of what the woman is now by this point in the narrative called the old slave. Um, and you know, we can, I hear the titter. Yes, she's not even 60. So we can think about the meaning of that. Um, she uses her literacy and the knowledge that she has acquired as a genteel woman uh, to educate James in a way that is going to take him beyond his captive status and make it suitable for the birth place that he would have when he returns, if and when he returns to England. So she becomes his kind instructress. And I'm not going to read the entire quotation, but her her education of Greek and Roman mythology, of historians, poets, and philosophers very much mirrors that certainly not of uh, an aristocratic male, but of a male the next level down, right? Who would read the class classics in translation, but be very much familiar with both history, current events, et cetera. So she is, because uh, she reads these only in translation. So she is the one who is able to in turn translate that again to James as her young tutor. Um, she doesn't have any books with her, of course. So the act of teaching is reliant completely on her recollection of her past learning. As, a, as the text tells us, she calls everything she could into her remembrance and writes information down on scraps of paper that she takes to James when she feeds him uh, his daily food. So he too is secreting these pieces of paper and educating himself uh, and memorizing what it is that she is telling him to try until he has everything memorized, as it says, by heart. Now, this process of education not only helps construct his British identity, but it also inserts him into a history where he rec that he can recognize as his own. When he found an act, uh, an action, or a great noble thing done by one of his ancestors, his young heart was ready to burst. The older female slave provides him with a distinct history into which he can imagine himself, restoring a continuity with England so that he can uh, despite his, you know, his alienated condition geographically and her alienated condition of captivity, she can help support him to become the kind of British citizen that he would be able to be when he returns to England. Uh, it is also something that undermines the moral or cultural authority to the degree it exists of American masters in a distinctly colonial American spot. They're represented as unredeemably barbarous. As James grows older, he develops a much more nuanced understanding of the world and his position within it. Is his ca captivity enlarged with the increase of his years, as Haywood said? His idea of men and things grew still more clear and distinct. He questions men's motive and reflects on the vices of mankind and expresses contempt for avarice and ingratitude. His judicious remarks align him, again, with the idealized principles of rationality, benevolence, and self-control. His contemplation to the nature of things reveals his superiority of mind, despite being crushed by such a series of cruelties and misfortunes. He explores first principles and sounds practically Lockean in his assessment of property, enslavement and the articulation of wealth. And it's really interesting that every moment that James thinks about his own escape and contemplates the value of liberty, he, rec he articulates that it requires a base action, something that he disdains even more than base, than mean servitude. So he rationalizes the conditions of his own captivity. And I'm gonna read a longer quote from him. As he was the property of his master, and his service had been purchased by him for a certain period of time, it seemed not strictly just he should deprive him of himself without any assurance of having it in his power to return him as much money as the residue of his time with him might be worth. This is a, certainly a great example of someone who's completely um, embrace not perhaps not embraced but naturalized his own self-commodification right oh i've been sold as property uh which he's willing to categorize himself as that he can't calculate the monetary time that he owes him uh, and, and is un is reluctant to attempt to free himself because he is truly a noble man and doesn't want to in some ways shortchange or in uh disrupt uh the contractual relationship with this american master it doesn't really 
necessarily distinguish him from the baser attitude of the American plantation owner because it embraces that same notion of commodification. James does not lament the deplorable conditions in which he lives. They are the least galling parts of his slavery. That's a quote from Haywood. His objection rather is philosophical. The reflections upon the unwarrantable and unnatural act that resulted in his enslavement are infinitely severer than all his body could endure. Ultimately, James does run away. Uh, his term is extended, and then he's subjected to increasingly harsh treatment by a revengeful American master who, while particularly heinous, is not characterized as an outlier. Right? James's subsequent American masters are equally cruel, and this noble slave is consistently, quote unquote, noble slave, is consistently positioned as superior to these unreflective American landowners and masters and the legal system that they construct and endorse. And he is clearly aligned with a British ruling class from which and by which, of course, he was kidnapped and to which he returns at the end of the narrative. It's worth noting that like all these contemporary narratives about Ansley, Haywood paints American colonial captivity as unbearably bleak, but she rarely discusses the enslaved Africans who actually comprise the majority of the unfree laborers with whom James works. So what does Haywood's text tell us specifically, and what does it suggest about larger patterns of representation of captivity? The culmination of the narrative and the detailed description of the consequences of British captivity in American colonial space documents how fully the role of the elite British male as an appropriate master had been naturalized and in turn how debased the image of the American master was. So the text, Haywood's text sort of shores up those expectations about British masculinity at mid-century, especially in contrast to the colonies. As a result, her text also, and I think I would say Ansley's narrative more broadly, serves at times explicitly to justify and essentially endorse British plantation owners and slaveholders in the West Indies as somehow superior in their actions. Like the British ruling class, these men are described as fulfilling an idealized model of rational, enlightened, and benevolent domination particularly in control to the emotional, arbitrary, and brutal impulses of their colonial American counterparts. And I would note that this sort of benevolent domination can be used in a colonial West Indian context, or of course, domestically, right? With wives, children, domestic servants in England. Finally, Haywood's text and the pattern of indentured servitude that she presents demonstrates perhaps most importantly, the precarity of life for individuals in 18th century England. Uh, the possibility of rapid change of fortunes was profound and widespread. The heir to a title and a married gentlewoman can both find themselves laboring in captivity in colonial America in Haywood's text and potentially in the real world. This pattern illustrates what my book as a whole explores, which is again, the kinds of domestic captivity to which individuals could be subject throughout 18th century England. So thank you for your attention and I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Um, so, so what happened to him when he went back to England? <laughs> well, I wish I could tell you there's a happy ending. He, um, there's not. He had an unfortunate, hun unfortunate hunting accident where he killed somebody. So there was a trial for that, which sort of de derailed his trial to get his title back. And in the meantime, before the trial was finished and before he could actually gain his title, he died and um, the title went unclaimed. So his, uh, his evil Uncle Richard won even though he was um, dead by the time Ansley gets back. I know it's a great, and the thing is, it sounds like such a fantastical story, like, oh, but it was so incredibly pow important or you know, powerful and popular that I can't begin to tell you how not only newspapers uh, and as I suggested, every level of, um, a publication had it. Haywood's novel was republished in a very popular periodical called The Gentleman's Magazine. So there were excerpts of it that were, were widely circulated. The Gentleman's Magazine was not only published monthly and then distributed, but also then bound. So, I mean, it was a perpetual story. And it was thought to be so wide 
widely known and familiar that um, there's a novel called uh, Roderick Random by a, an 18th century novelist called Tobias Smollett, which pulls the story and didn't feel the need to footnote it because, well, everyone knows about this narrative, right? Um, and of course, the idea of changelings or foundlings or kidnapped is a very popular thing uh, to see in the 18th century. And again, we think of it as sort of metaphorical or fanciful, but it's very much rooted in uh, real historical events. Any other question? Ryan? Given that Ainsley story and, and Haywood too, is, is anybody immune from these anxieties, these fears of yeah. being captive? Um, yeah. Is there a level, you know, a hierarchy or even the, the royals, you know, thinking in terms of, right. you know, against other Power. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we think back, I mentioned rule Britannia at the beginning. That's a great question because um, one of my, I, I mentioned this female poet who's corresponding with her husband who, you know, is a slaveholder and a plantation owner. And he repeatedly, and he's one of the most privileged people in England. He's not, he doesn't have a title, but he's, you know, uh, uh, in the military, uh, very high status. Uh, he refers to himself as someone who feels enslaved. I mean, here is among the most he's a citizen because he's a white male who owns property. Uh, he can vote. He goes on to the house and he himself feels really held captive both by tangible things and financial pressures, but also just sort of the anxiety in some ways. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say captivity is kind of a modern existence, but it's the very rare person who doesn't recognize um, just how quickly it is both their fortunes can change in a world with no social safety net, et cetera, but how um, there is, there's nothing to really inoculate you from it. And it's found, felt, of course, clearly most ke keenly by women and by uh, people who don't have any real claims to property or authority. But if you look carefully at documentation um, and letters from more elite people, you see it there as well, that it's just an anxiety. Um, because there's no way to necessarily insulate yourself uh, in, in the modern era. Uh, another example, not to, to belabor the point, is Barbary captives, right? People who are literally kidnapped off of ships when they're crossing the Atlantic or crossing the Mediterranean. Um, the pirates or the, the Barbary Corsairs intentionally are looking for the most elite people because that's who you get the best ransom for. So there are all sorts of narratives of women who are the daughters of aristocrats, European or British aristocrats, um, who are held ransom. And so they too are subject to this. And the anxiety about that is tremendous, right? Oh my gosh, are they going to have to convert? Oh my goodness, are they going to be you know, sexually violated? What's going to happen? Um, so there's a lot of anxiety around those narratives as well. But even the idea that you can't have safe passage from one place to the other. Um, and if even if, especially because you perhaps are someone of a more elite status, that's going to mark you as more vulnerable because you become more desirable to be held captive or kidnapped, etc. So, so that was a long answer. My short answer is nah, probably not. I mean, I think Queen Anne was probably feeling pretty good, but uh, beyond that, uh, I'm not sure uh, how secure anyone really felt. Right? We just don't have the same safeguards. So, so what happened to most people who were indentured servants? Um, the narrative that I read a lot is that, you know, they were, you could be there for seven years and then you were granted 10 acres. Yeah. You could have your own little farm kind of thing. What really happened to that mass population? Yeah, that's a really great question. And there's no one consistent answer to that, right? And we, if you read narratives widely, there are those success stories where the indentured servant labors, um, and you know, marries his master's daughter, et cetera. And so you see those success stories. But the reality is that it, they're not really given that much after seven years of indentured servitude. And again, you have to think, is this a willing, um, voluntarily entered situation or is it not? And you see a lot of language, uh, primarily by British writers who are somewhat dismissive Right, of people who sort of wide-eyed come over in indentured servitude, not realizing that, that they've essentially opted to enslave themselves. If you've uh, ever read uh, Defoe's Moll Flanders, Moll Flanders' mother, who, who is here, and of course Moll herself ends up in Virginia, who speaks sort of dismissively of like, well, they think they've come over because they're going to have this better life, but really we just consider them, and she uses the term slaves. 
Um, so they maybe will transition to a kind of subsistence farming, but the idea that they're going to acquire enough cat, you know, capital that's going to enable them to be really successful, those success stories are, are much far and few between, right? No matter how fanciful the narratives might be. And again, we see both kinds, um, both the success, but more frequently the lack, right? And it raises the other question, what do you go back to? If you go back to Oh, that's a great question. And um, it depends on whether the apprenticeship is here. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> he asked about, go ahead. Have you anything to say on apprenticeships? Yes. Uh, apprenticeship is a really fascinating um, situation. And it depends. I can, I can speak more extensively about British apprenticeships. And, you know, we all are familiar again with the seven year period of time with which you would work and live quite intimately with a master and usually more than one apprentice. And they're both male and female apprentices. Apprenticeships for women would typically be in millinery shops or doing some sort of handwork and uh, male apprentices had a real hierarchy, right? Are you apprenticed to a banker? Are you apprenticed to a goldsmith? Are you apprenticed to a, wa a watchmaker? But it was not unlike, I guess, a law firm or tenured faculty, you know, tenure eligible faculty member. It's kind of an upper out because you can't keep as many apprentices as you have. And what's really interesting is that they're not, um, again, it's, it's often a rosy picture, but it's kind of a situation where the rich get richer. If you can afford to put your child into a great apprenticeship, because you had to pay to put someone into apprenticeship, great. They have a much clearer you know, career trajectory. But if your apprenticeship, in fact, there's a story um, about a man who sells himself into indentured servitude because the nature of his apprenticeship changes, right? He was given a good one, then his father dies, and he has to move to a less prestigious one that has no future for him. And the physical conditions, not unlike domestic servants, which often had terrible, I mean, Downton Abbey is like completely fake, right? Um, you know, domestic servants often are, are, are sleeping on stairs. They're not given any private space. And that's sometimes true for apprentices who would maybe sleep in shifts if they didn't have their own room. And what happens is the idealized vision is that an apprentice becomes part of the family. Again, if you're familiar with Hogarth's um, progress set of prints, where uh, industry and idleness, it shows the good apprentice and the bad apprentice, right? And the good apprentice marries the master's daughter and ends up, you know, inheriting the taking over the business. The idle apprentice or the bad apprentice ends up being captive, right? He goes out, he's in, captured by a press gang and goes out to sea. So it was longer as a long answer to your uh, question because it, there's no one answer. It could be great if you got a good apprentice and had a good master. The other thing, the last thing I'll say about that is that there was a real concern about apprentices because they were seen male apprentices because they were seen not unlike kind of, uh, a, you know, you put a whole gang of men together at one time, 18 to 21, anything could happen, right? That's the usual age of apprentices. So there are all sorts of books like The Apprentices Vade Mecum, for example, uh, which was published by Samuel Richardson, which has very detailed information about what you should and should not let your apprentice do to make sure that he doesn't get into to trouble. One of the most popular plays of the early 18th century is a thing called The London Merchant, which shows what happens when things go wrong for an apprentice and who, you know, is seduced and then embezzles all his master's money. Um, and in the apprentice's vade mecum, it says you should not let your apprentice ever go to the theater unless he goes to see this play, The London Merchant, which is going to show how terrible things can be if you're an apprentice, if, you, if you're that wayward apprentice. So they really tried to regulate it because it was potentially such a problematic, undefined future. Did that answer your question sufficiently? Okay. Thank you. It's, it's, apprenticeship is really fascinating. Um, the trials and tribulations of it, right? The, once again, no necessarily clear path for that. Great. So you have these 90 years up here. Yeah. Was there a clear end to it? And how, how did that happen? That's a great question as well. And the reason why I have those 90 years, and of course, you know, when we put sort of end markers on anything, we recognize it's artificial. Right? It's not like in 1750, like, oh, no more domestic captivity. Not the case. Um, I'm interested in the period. What happens is once we, in England, we have a, a more active development of groups of people who are more 
cognizant of what's happening in the transatlantic slave trade and are working both to abolish the trade and then subsequently to abolish enslavement, the terms change, right? And they become much more focused on sort of a racial axis of thinking about different categories of the unfree. And the notions of the kinds of captivity, some of the kinds of captivity I'm looking at, um, the terms of it shift because there's a renewed focus, a new focus, not renewed, a new focus on the plight of enslaved Africans, primarily in the West Indies, is, is what the real concern is. Uh, one thing that doesn't change, and in some ways that's the illustration of my book cover, that's a Hogarth painting called Marriage a la Mode, which shows, as you know, you can see that the dogs are chained together and the husband, the, the, the engaged people who don't seem particularly engaged with each other um, are also going to be bond in. Um, matrimony, what doesn't change is the legal conditions for women uh, in terms of their own kinds of domestic captivity. Uh, you know, as I mentioned at the start, you, you could have an ecclesiastical divorce, which was terrible for a woman because there was no way to provide them with any you know, financial support. But uh, literally, you had to have an act of parliament. There's no mechanism for divorce until 1857. Um, marital rape is, is legally codified as something that's OK. That actually doesn't go away till the 1980s. Um, so it's it certainly doesn't stop in 1750, just the terms shift because people are much more aware of what's going on with the enslavement of Africans. Did that answer your question? Sure. Well, thank you. I'm happy to answer any other questions that you might have subsequently. And I really appreciate your attention. Thank you so much.